All right. We are in a brand new series called Jesus Calling. And like Daniel said, it's an overview of the entire scriptures. Now, I know we just spent like four months or, yeah, about four months in four chapters in, in Philippians. Um, so we're not, like he said, we're not going verse by verse through the Bible. It's a big book. But what we're going to do is we want to give you the big picture of what the scriptures are about. One of our biggest problems is we, we read something in the Bible and we don't know how it fits. Okay, we don't, we don't get it. We can't understand it. We can't follow it. And one of the big problems with with people outside of the Christian faith is they latch onto those pieces of the Bible that sound anti to their culture, they sound anti to their desires, they sound anti to our city, and they run with those without realizing the Bible is this big meta-narrative. It's this huge story that all these pieces fit into. So over the course of this series, we want to give you, if you think about a puzzle, we want to give you the box, okay? We want to give you the box so that um, when you come across a piece, you can look back at the box and say, oh, this is where it fits in. You come across another piece, and this is where it fits in. Good news about the Bible is there's, there's corners and there's a border. Um, and so throughout this series, we're going to give you the box, but then also we're going to give you corners and the border. And then so eventually when you come across pieces that you don't quite understand, you can look back at this framework and say, this is where it fits in. Okay, so... This summer, we really want to equip you into that. Two things we're going to do throughout this summer, because here's the reality. As I look out here, half of you guys that I'm speaking to right now online are gone. So next week, you'll be here, and you'll have missed this week or vice versa. You guys will be in and out during the summer, vacation, cottage, family, you know, whatever it is. Um, so throughout this series, what we want to do is we're going to trace the line of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the promised one, which we started last week, and we're going to talk about him in each uh, sermon. And then we're going to talk about our discipleship framework. This is hear, trust, and obey. Very simple. At Trinity Life, discipleship, learning to walk with Jesus, um, isn't a program. It isn't a class. It is those three words. It is learning to hear God's voice and recognize it and trusting it enough to obey it and to walk, walk in faith. This is straight out of John chapter 10 where Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice, they know my voice, and they obey my voice and they follow me. So that's what, when I say discipleship, that's what we're talking about uh, here at Trinity Life Church. And that's what we want to give you throughout this entire series. Okay, so if you miss next week, for instance, you can come back the following week, you can hear the summary of the, the previous week, and then plug right in because you know Jesus will be in it, and then also hear, trust, and obey will be in it as well, okay? Um, so let me talk about the last, last week. We kicked off the series last week. Um, I, I preached out of three chapters last week, okay? Three chapters out of the entire Bible. There's 1,189 chapters in the Bible, and I did three. So we came off to a slow start. <laughs> we have to get through the rest of those chapters um, by the end of the series. Um, but I did it because the, the first three chapters are some of the most crucial chapters in the Bible. So last week, talked about how uh, God, God creates and everything is perfect, everything is good. He gives us a choice 
us being humanity. He gives humanity a choice because he's not forcing love onto us. If God were to make everything good and just say, now love me, like he, he would have made robots. But he made us with uh, freedom of choice. He made us with free will. He made us with the power of moral choice where we can choose right or wrong, good or evil. So he gives them that choice. He gives them a bountifully good choice. He says, any tree in the garden you can eat of, except for one. He doesn't make evil the, the more pervasive choice. He actually makes good the more widespread choice. And he makes evil the, the, uh, a scarce choice. So it's just one tree in the garden. And like I said last week, it could have been any tree. There wasn't anything probably inherently evil about that tree. What was, what was evil was actually the choice, okay? It wasn't like the tree. It was the actual choice that they made. They chose, they, Adam and Eve said, we know what's good for us. God, you told us what's good for us, but actually we know what's good for us, so we're going to choose to know the distinction between good and evil. And it was in that choice that they, began, that they knew the distinction, okay? So this tree was set up for that choice. And who knows how long Adam and Eve were in the garden? Eventually, they chose that they wanted to know what was good and what was evil. And, and they ate of that fruit. Now, there was another tree in the garden called the tree of life. And the tree of life was what perpetuated life, was what gave them life. And God said, um, and I said this last week, oftentimes we think, oh, they disobeyed, God was punishing them, he, he cast them out of the garden. That's a wrong reading of, of the story. God didn't punish them. That was the consequence for their action. And God actually protected them and said, I got to remove you from the tree of life. Because the Bible says this, if you take and eat of the tree of life, you'll live forever in your sinful state. But here's the good news. God says, I'm going to make a way for you. And this is the promised one. This is the Messiah, the one who's going to come to save them. This is Jesus Christ. Okay? So that was, we talked all about that last week, talked about the fatherhood of God. It was Father's Day, so talked about that a little bit. And then now we're going into this week. And if you see that, the first two chapters of the entire Bible here were good. Everything was great. Everything was perfect. And then the rest of the chapters, 1,187 chapters, are all about us and our need for a Savior. They're all about Jesus. They're all about us waiting for this promised one. And the Bible is showing us how much we actually need this person, okay? Um, because this is the human predicament. We don't think we need anybody to come rescue us. We don't think we need anybody to come save us. As a matter of fact, in our culture, we don't want people to do things for us because we're independent. We're individuals, and we want to do things for ourselves. The Bible says, actually, it's been all done for you. All you have to do is believe and accept. And that's so hard for us to do because religion says, work, 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 work for your salvation. Christianity says, all you got to do is believe in Jesus. He's done everything. You could, like, all, you could work as hard as you wanted to, and it still falls short, the Bible says. Because it's, it's never going to be perfect, and only Jesus is that for us. And he's done it for us. And so the Bible is a story of, of tracing Jesus and, and trying to see where he's, where he's coming. We're anticipating, anticipating. He comes, and then now we're in this age where we're anticipating him returning and making all things new. 
So let's rewind. We're going to go through the entire book of Genesis this morning. So this passage uh, that Emily read this morning, Genesis 12, 1 through 3, she read it because it's one of the most crucial passages in the scriptures to understand the rest of the scriptures, okay? Um, I'm not going to really focus in on that passage this morning. Like, like Daniel pointed out, these sermons are going to be a little different than normal. Instead of kind of going into a passage, we're giving you an overview. So we're going to talk about a lot of different scriptures. We're going we're to talk about this passage a little bit, but I won't necessarily delve down into it and mine the entire thing. So um, before, we get, before we jump into, into that passage, though, um, just want to say, again, Genesis 3.15, God establishes this word seed, okay? And he says, this offspring, this word seed, he's going to come and he's going to rescue mankind. He's going to rescue all of us, this seed is. And now when we get to Genesis 12, this word reappears. And if, and if you go through the entire Bible, you'll see this word offspring or seed as it's translated sometimes. You'll see it come up throughout the whole Old Testament. So it's anticipating Genesis 3.15. So you can follow that word throughout the whole scriptures, and this is one of the significant points where it comes up. So Genesis 12, um, there's three things that God promises Abraham here. So right now, there's just people on the earth, they're kind of scattered around, they all speak different languages, and God comes to one guy, he calls Abram, uh, who's later renamed Abraham, and he calls Abraham out, and he, he says, I'm going to give you these three things if you hear, trust, and obey. He says, I'm going to give you land. So you see that in verse 1. I'm going to give you land. And the land in the Old Testament isn't necessarily this physical location, although it is, but it represents God's presence, okay? Um, so remember that as, you, as we talk about the land throughout the Old Testament. It represents God's presence and his rest. So basically the whole Bible is trying to get back to God's presence and rest in the Garden of Eden. Okay? This, is the, this is the journey of, of us. This is our journey. We're, we're stressed out. We're, we're living this life where we have bills to pay and jobs to get and children to feed, and it's hard. And our whole lives are actually trying to experience rest in the presence of God. Some of us just need to be made more aware of that. And so this, this whole book is about this. So he says, I'm going to show you this land. And then he also says, I'm going to make of you a great nation. So this offspring is going to come from you. And then, the third, and then you're going to be a blessing. And, uh, and then the third, the third verse emphasizes this even more. So it says, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So three things, land, offspring or seed, and blessing. And he says, that offspring seed is going to bless the entire world. I'm going to make of you a great nation. Okay. So this is... This has gotten up to Genesis 12. We'll trace this throughout the entire scriptures, um, Genesis 12, that is. Um, before we get into that, I want to talk about my dad a little bit. So uh, my dad's a perfectionist. He's, yeah, like if you ever get a letter from my dad, on the envelope, you'll see where he had, he's written the address with a ruler and if there's a G in it or a P, he's just done the circle and then he moves the ruler and you can see where he's put the extra line. <laughs> like he's that, he has to be that perfect about things. And this is the household I grew up in. So, and my dad likes things done a particular way. So, which a lot of us do, right? So he's a particular 
perfectionist. And then he raised my sister and I in a particular way, and um, so you see it in his parenting. Um, a lot of you guys can relate. Some of you guys are, are this way. You're, you're perfectionists, and you like things done a certain way. Some of you guys are passive-aggressive perfectionists. When something's not done your way, your frustrations kind of lay down here, and you're frustrated, but nobody knows why. <laughs> you don't exactly tell people. Some of you guys are more like power-driven or power-hungry perfectionists, where um, you do it because you just need to control the situation and you want to you want to control the outcome. So you you thrive on this power of, of perfection. Uh, some of you guys are more like planned perfectionists, where where you like you would say, oh, well, it just needs to be done this way in this time. That, that's just that's just the way it needs to be done. I would say you're probably more of a pretentious perfectionist, not not a planned one. Um, but all of us have probably some some aspect of that. Um, let me give you seven signs. This is from a guy named Pete Scazzaro, and I kind of, they're adapted. So some of these are his, some of them I threw in there. Um, but seven signs that you're a perfectionist and it's not healthy. One, you're anxious a lot, like, because you have to have control over things. Uh, you're impatient with the mistakes of others, and even more impatient with yourself. You reach your goals, but you're still not content. You overfunction doing things for others that they can and should do for themselves. You rarely play, laugh, or relax because you feel guilty doing so. Uh, and this one I got from Adam, actually. Um, you have many side-to-side -side relationships, which means that you can work together and, and be content, but you don't have many face-to-face -face relationships. We're actually doing things together, and it's all about the relationship. It's all about the task for you, not about the relationship, okay? Uh, and then seven, your devoted time with God struggles because you have trouble trusting him and letting go of some things. Does that sound like anybody in here? You guys struggle with any of those things? I'm sure if you don't consider yourself a full-blown perspective, uh, a perfectionist, that you struggle with some of these things. Some of these things uh, speak to you a little bit. Um, or you're thinking about somebody who you know who fits, who fits all these things. There's a couple people in my life that I'm thinking of. I won't, don't make eye contact with me because you're in this room. <laughs> uh, he knows who he is. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, yeah, uh, odds are though you struggle with some, there's, there's some things in here that, that you struggle with. Now, can you imagine if God was like this? What if God struggled with these things? What if God was a perfectionist God? Now, God's a perfect God, but he's not a perfectionist God. And we see that in Genesis because the Bible is all about us messing up all the time and God cleaning that up and God calling us back and God's grace covering us. And we don't have this God who struggles with, with these things. Now, I'm, I'm sure God likes things done a certain way, but he gives us tremendous freedom to mess up. I'm sure God wants to have a side-to-side -side relationship with us, but he'd much rather have a face-to-face -face one with us. He's, he's, he'd much rather us be with him in his presence than us doing things for him.
okay? So the Bible isn't about this uh, religious framework that's putting it on us where we have a list of do's and don'ts and it's all about the tasks. The Bible is about a God who is drawing us back to himself, who wants a personal, intimate relationship, friendship with us. He's our father and we're his sons. He's our father, we're his daughters. And, and thank God that he's not like us, right? And so over, as we go through Genesis uh, this morning, I want you to remember this because we're going to see a bunch of times where we keep on messing up and God keeps on pursuing us and loving us and cleaning it up, okay? So let's, uh, let's go the first, the first um, slide. I can't remember what it is. <laughs> What's that? Yeah, yeah, so um, that's not it, the next one. All right, here's three patterns that Genesis reveals to us about God and ourselves. And the slide that many just put up there um, said that the blessings of God always triumph over our sins, okay? The blessings of God always triumph over our sins. That's what I want you to keep in your mind as we go through it this morning. But there's three patterns that Genesis reveals, reveals about God and ourselves, okay? And the first one is God's continuous calling despite human failure. Now, there's all these really awesome people in Genesis. So it starts out with Adam and Eve, right? And they fail. We talked about that last week and a little bit this, this morning. They fail. God doesn't punish them. He protects them. He puts them out of the garden, and he makes a way for them. And then Adam and Eve have Cain and Abel. Cain kills Abel. And God uh, makes another way through another son, Seth. And, and Seth, this is actually really cool about the Bible. So the Bible has really cool things like this. So, so Seth, um, his name means name. And when God says, I'm going to use Seth, uh, he's saying, I'm going to make a name for myself. And you see this all through the Old Testament where God says, I'm going to make a name for myself in the world because the world needs to know who I am, that I'm their father. And so the son he uses is Seth for this, the, the guy whose name means name. Um, it's, it's just a really cool thing. Uh, so there's 10 generations in between Adam and a guy named Noah, okay? 10 generations. And there's 10 generations of people between Noah and actually the Bible shows us eight generations. It says Noah and it goes eight generations. And then we get to Genesis 12 and it shows us Abraham. And so what the Bible does there, if you're, if you're picking up on these things, is it's anticipating something's coming. So we have eight generations. We've already seen 10, 10. Now we have eight generations. Abraham's the ninth, and we're waiting for the promised son, which is Isaac, who we'll talk about in a second, to come. And so you're anticipating throughout the whole story of Abraham. And the Bible does this. It gives an overview of history, and then it focuses in on a person, and then it goes back out and it focuses in, and it goes back out, and it's where God is, is, is coming down into creation to do something. So when you go through these generations of people, a lot of us just read over that, but they're highly significant. If you go through that, it's this overview, and then you get to Genesis 12, and it goes down for the rest of Genesis. <laughs> it, goes, it just goes down. And then in Exodus, it comes back up, and it goes down to Moses. And then it comes back up, and, and it keeps on doing that. So the problem with these 
10 generations from Adam to Noah is they fail. They, they become very, very sinful, and they fail God over and over and over again. The problem with the next 10 generations is they do the same thing. So think about it. Adam is in this perfect creation. God says, you can have anything you want here except that one thing, but you can have everything you want. The world is yours. And Adam thanks God by ruining all of creation, by eating the fruit that he shouldn't shouldn't eat, okay? Um, You have Noah. You come up to Noah, and Noah, I won't go into this whole story, but Noah and the ark, um, God saves Noah's family because they're the only righteous ones on the face of the earth. The Bible says that all have turned away, all have rejected God, all uh, people there uh, are evil and have turned to evil, except Noah and his family. So God saves this remnant um, uh, in the midst of suffering. He saves them, puts them on this boat, floods the world, and then Noah thanks God immediately after by um, getting drunk and falling asleep naked in this tent and shaming his, <laughs> uh, shaming his sons. So um, he just fails. So you're like, hey, maybe this is the promised guy. Maybe this is the Messiah. Maybe this is the one. And then he fails. And then you move forward. You have Abraham. God gives him this tremendous promise. Blessing, land, seed, offspring, nations are all going to come from you. And Abraham says, yeah, this is awesome. And he goes and thanks God by committing adultery um, and having a son that is not the promised son because he takes God's promise and he tries to work it himself. And he fails. And God doesn't reject him. God doesn't kick him to, this, kick him to the curb. He actually corrals him back in and says, the promise is still there if you just believe. It's yours. And Abraham believes, and God says it's credited to him as righteousness. And it puts him back into a, a right standing with God. And then you have uh, Isaac, you have Jacob, Jacob gets the same promise. This is Abraham's grandson. He gets the same promise that Abraham got. got. It's, this, it's this promise that's land, seed, and blessing. And it's this awesome vision that Jacob has, the Bible recounts, where he, he sees heaven and he sees these amazing things. And God says, I'm going to give you the things that I promised Abraham. And he thanks God by marrying two women in order to facilitate the, the promise. Um, and he fails. He fails. So we see so many failures in the scriptures, but what is more important is we see God continually calling them back to himself. He's continually saying, it's okay. I'll fix that failure. Just keep on believing. Just keep on trusting. Just keep on having faith. Just keep on hearing my voice, trusting it, and obeying it. And they're listening for God's voice the whole time. They're, they're hearing for it. And although you're not perfect, God is continually crafting his image in you. I talked about this last week, how God is continually restoring the image of himself in you because it's been corrupted by sin. And God is trying to make it perfect again. We don't have to do that. Jesus does that for us. The Spirit does that in us if we believe in Jesus. You know, we're not a perfect church, Right? Um, there's a lot of things that we have wrong. We're all broken people. We all have issues that we bring to this body of Christ, what the, what the Bible calls the church. And our city sees that we're broken people. Um, but are we hearing God's voice so that we don't perpetuate brokenness, but we 
actually step forward in truth and, and trust and, and obeying God so that we show our city that there's a better way. That's how we, that's, that's when we can hear God's voice, and that's what these guys are doing. Um, the other day, actually a couple weeks ago, I don't, yeah, I guess a couple weeks ago, uh, I was, Archie and Cindy live just south of here, and they live in an apartment building right across from the Loblaws. They're like really epic Loblaws attached to Maple Leaf Square. Have you guys, or Maple Leaf uh, Gardens. Have you guys been in there? Like, it's really cool. Uh, so um, they live across the street from that. Uh, Archie's third floor is, the roof is open, and they have like chairs out there and, and grills and stuff. And so I was up there, Archie was cooking burgers, um, me, him, and Curtis were up there, and Missy was in the Loblaws. And so I, I'm talking to them, and I walk over to the edge, and I look over, and right when I look over, I see my wife, Missy, I see her walking out of the Loblaws. Okay, I'm three floors up, this is church and, wait, Carlton, yeah, yeah. Uh, so there's tons of people. <laughs> and I was like, hey, babe! That's all I said. And amazingly, only one person looked up. My wife. <laughs> and I was so shocked, one, that nobody else looked up when I said, hey, babe, because it could have been anybody. It was so general. Um, and two, that actually Missy heard my voice three stories up among a crowd of people, and she looked right at me. <laughs> she was like, ha! Ah. <laughs> and then she's like, what are you doing? <laughs> um, and that's, that's what God's doing in Genesis. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Noah, Adam, they get mixed up in the crowd, and God shouts down to them, hey, Adam, hey, Abraham, hey, I'm your father, I'm here. And we, we see time and time again that God is calling out to them, and they look up, and they hear God's voice. And the Bible is about these, these men and women who are hearing the voice of God and who are trusting it enough to obey it. But it's more about a God who doesn't stop calling us, who doesn't stop pursuing us, who wants to rescue us, who wants us to come back into the garden and experience rest and peace in his presence. So that's a pattern we see that begins in Genesis that's going to go throughout the entirety of the scriptures, okay? Uh, the second pattern is a pattern of God's abundant grace covering human suffering, Okay, I hit on this a little bit. We see this with Adam and Eve in the garden. A lot of people read that and we're like, man, God punished them. He kicked them out of the garden. Uh, no, that's God protecting them. That's his grace. We see Noah in the ark and we're like, man, why did God have to destroy the whole world? Uh, no, that's God protecting people who are following him in the midst of suffering. And the Bible says like everyone else rejected him. Everyone else turned their backs to him. And he gave them time and time again. You know how long Noah was building that ark? It's not like God made an ark and said, Noah, get in, floodwaters come. He gave generations, a hundred plus years that Noah was building this thing for people to turn back to him and repent. And God says, okay, I'm going to let everyone in the ark who's, who's going to follow me. And it's only Noah and his family. And all those animals. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so, um, don't ask me how that happened. Uh, <laughs> and so, God protects again, and, he's, and he saves a family in order to make a way for the promised one, in order to make a way for us. 
okay? Um, and we see this time and time again. Um, but oftentimes, we read the Bible, our culture reads the Bible as judgment, as an angry God, as a God who is punishing us, and I don't want us to see God that way. God says, yes, there's consequences for your actions, there's consequences for your sin, but God's not waiting for you to mess up so that he can punish you. Now, God does talk about discipline, but he says he does it as a loving father because there's consequences for the way we do things um, and for choosing evil over good. The foundational problem we have, the foundational definition of sin is we choose what we think is good for us when it's not. God said this is good, and we said nope, we decide what's good, and we choose something else. And so if you think about your sin, it's oftentimes you choosing what's not best for you, okay? God wants something so much better for you. He's a father who wants to give you so much more, and instead we're choosing uh, what's so much less, what we weren't even designed for. That's why it never satisfies, because we weren't designed for it. That's why it's so fleeting, because we weren't designed for it. That's why it only lasts a short time. That's why it's ephemeral and not eternal, because we weren't designed to take pleasure in those things. They weren't designed to satisfy us. We, we were meant for something more uh, eternal and, and greater than, this, than what this world can offer. Um, I was born in California, um, Southern California. Uh, we, we lived in multiple places in Southern California, and then <clears throat> when I was around uh, three or four, we lived in this desert. And it was outside of <laughs> the LA area, but my parents were, I mean, California's expensive. So even back then, uh, this was in the early 80s. And, and so we, we moved in the desert outside the city. We had this like house, we had to drive through this dirt road and it's pure desert. Um, but it was awesome, we had a huge yard to play in. There's no grass, <laughs> it, was, it was all dirt. Uh, huge sand pit. Um, so one day we had this dog named Jackie. Have you guys, do you guys know Benji? Like those movies, those Benji movies, they're pretty old. But okay, okay, I see the old people raising their hands. <laughs> yeah. Archie's like, yeah, Benji. <laughs> no. um, so Jackie was like, Jackie was like Benji, okay? He was like that dog. Um, like a terrier uh, mix with something. So, um, but he was medium size and great dog. I remember when we had to put him down when he was a lot older, um, my dad crying because they had him forever. So anyways, um, such a great dog, very smart. Uh, my sister and I, I have a twin sister. We were outside playing uh, in the dirt, and Jackie just, just starts going crazy. I, he's normally not like this, but he starts acting a little abnormal, starts barking like he's angry, and, and just starts doing some crazy stuff. And my sister and I are kind of bothered. So we go, <laughs> we're like, okay, Jackie. So we go around the corner of the house, and when we, when we round the corner, there's a huge snake just sitting there ready to attack. And Jackie jumps right in front of the snake. And my sister and I, and he starts barking like crazy, and uh, my sister and I run in the house, and we didn't see Jackie ever again. I'm just kidding. So, <laughs> so, so many mouths went, <laughs> so, so, 
<laughs> so, okay, so all that happened, so Jackie jumps in front of us, and he scares the snake off, and then all three of us, we make it back into safety in the house. Um, and, uh, and then we realized, like, that's why Jackie was acting crazy, right? And so sometimes, when we look at the Bible, we see God doing things, and because we have a skewed perspective, we don't have the full picture, we think God's doing something that he's not. We just thought Jackie was acting crazy and angry for no reason. Sometimes we read the Bible, and, and our, our culture sees the Bible. Um, sometimes you may look at the Bible, and you're like, why is God doing that? Uh, well, if you don't have the whole picture, then you're not going to be able to understand it, because you have a skewed perspective. And inherently, your perspective is skewed because of sin, okay? So my, when I approached this Bible, I read something this week that all I could do was say to God, why is this in here? That's all I said. I was like, why? Why, why is this here? <laughs> I didn't get an answer. Um, <laughs> but that's all I could say. And I have two degrees in, in this. I, I mean, I've studied, I've studied this book for a long time. Um, and this is, and I still, and I'm assuming for the rest of my life, there'll still be some things where I'm like, why is this in here? And all I can say is, God, I don't know. My perspective is skewed. It's off. And all I need, all I can do is trust that, that you're a good God, because I know you are. I know you're a good God. I know you're a faithful God. I know you're a just God. I know you're a holy God. And I need to trust in that. There's some things that I can understand because I can't see that side of heaven because all I can see is, is, is uh, my life um, and then someone else's interpretation of history. But, you know, I have to trust that you're a good God and I have to trust in God's character. So sometimes that's, that's going to have to happen. Now, Jackie, we realized he had our best interests at heart. He was acting crazy. He was bothering us from playing whatever, G.I. Joe's or something. I don't know. Um, but he had our best interests at heart, and he saved my life that day. Um, I probably would have pushed my sister in front of the snake and then ran. Just <laughs> pushed her down. Uh, but he, he, like, he saved us that day. Um, and, and God is in the saving business, guys. Uh, he wants to save you. So if you don't understand something that God's doing, odds are he's just trying to rescue you. He's just trying to save you from yourself, from your sin, from a horrible situation. Uh, and that's what the Bible is all about. We see that over and over again. Um, that's the second pattern. We'll see it all through the scriptures. The third pattern is uh, God's culture superseding human culture. So here's the thing. God loves culture. Culture is good. God wants to redeem culture. Those are, the, those are truths. Remember those things. Um, when Adam and Eve choose to eat of the fruit, they start creating a culture that is anti-God, uh, that is anti-faith, that is anti-hearing God, that is anti-trusting God, that is anti-obeying God, okay? So then they begin to create this culture in the world, and that's the culture we live in. Now, the other truth is our culture is a mix of truth and falsehoods. It's a mix of good and evil. Because Adam and Eve still had the image of God in them, even though it's been corrupted. So now we live in a culture that is a mix of those things. And Genesis shows us that. Genesis shows us this pattern, and the Bible shows this pattern over and over again, that we live in this culture that's a mixture of 
good and evil, of truth and falsehoods. And we're constantly saying, what do we pick? Do we pick truth? Do we pick falsehood? What is truth? What is, what is false? What is good? What is evil? And, um, and that's why God had the Bible written, so that we know what's good and evil. We know what's truth and false. And, and so the Bible starts out with saying, with showing how God injects kingdom culture, the kingdom of God, kingdom culture, and it supersedes human culture, okay? So, um, when sin enters the world, um, this, is, this is something that happens, relationships break up, okay? Adam and Eve had a perfect marriage in the Garden of Eden. They looked a lot like Missy and I, perfect marriage. Uh, <laughs> she's like shaking her head, she's like... <laughs> um, they had a perfect marriage in the Garden, and then... When sin happens, what do you think happens? Just look at your relationships. Fighting, bickering, you don't see eye to eye. Maybe you're doing side to side instead of face to face. Maybe, um, maybe uh, you have different opinions on things. One of you is a perfectionist, one of you isn't. One of you is messy, one of you is not. This isn't just marriage, guys. This is like our friendships, this is our parents, this is our brothers and sisters. Uh, this is our, our, uh, our church, right? Just a bunch of messiness. This is what happens in relationships. Um, sin just starts to distort, distort things. Um, you know, when the fall happens, we, we, see, we see sin come in. Like I said, Adam ruined all of creation, basically. Um, but we see God start doing things that supersede this. So what ends up happening is uh, where he creates men and women equal, what happens after sin is there becomes a discrepancy. There becomes a disparity somehow, just in the way Adam lives and the way Eve lives. And in Genesis, we see God constantly elevating women in a society and a culture that actually pushed women down. And so a lot of people look at the Bible and they say, oh, it's misogynistic, it's anti-woman, it's, it's a sexist, patriarchal book. That could be, that's, that's the complete opposite of what the Bible is. The Bible is actually the opposite. Like, it's raised women, elevated women, all of its history. And it begins with doing this in Genesis. So in, in literature this old, you wouldn't see things like this, okay? Um, you have Eve who's the mother of all the living. You have Sarah, who's going to be the mother of nations. Actually, Abraham in Genesis 12, Abraham isn't the only one blessed. Sarah is also blessed, his wife. And she's elevated and said, you're going to be a blessing to the nations. Um, we have Rebecca, we have Leah, we have Rachel, like all these women in the scriptures that are, I mean, in Genesis, that are elevated. So God is already putting kingdom culture against human culture and saying, that's not the way to view things, guys. Look, look at what I'm saying here, what I'm highlighting. That's the way to view things. Uh, God, is, God shows uh, the Genesis is, is almost, it, basically it's anti-religion because it's all about God saying, just hear my voice, just trust me, just obey me. It's all about faith. It's all about God doing the work. God establishes covenants through the scriptures. One of these is Genesis 12. It's called the Abrahamic Covenant. And it's what's called a unilateral covenant, okay? It's a one-way covenant. So religion says, God, religion would say, God does something and you do something to earn God's favor. Abrahamic covenant and the covenants in the scriptures say, no, God does it all. All you got to do is believe. God does it all. 
You just trust God does it all. And so God begins to supersede our tendency to do things on our own, okay? Um, there's so many other examples in the scriptures on this as well. I, won't, I don't have time to go into all of them, but uh, one is another one. It's just really cool. I'll, I'll say this last one. So God is anti what will be called primogeniture. So mainly in that culture, the firstborn would get all the blessing, all the inheritance, all of that. God says it's not about who's firstborn. It's about who's hearing, trusting, and obeying. And so over and over again, we see the firstborn not get the inheritance and the blessing. God uses the second, third, sometimes the fourthborn to bring his offspring and his seed, the promised one, Jesus Christ, through. And we see this through the genealogy. And it's because the first, second, third born decided to reject God and decided to, in one case, murder a bunch of people. And God says, I can't, that's not right. <laughs> that's not good. So he moves down the list and, and he goes with the, the fourth born eventually. So um, these are the three patterns throughout the scriptures that, that Genesis reveals to us about God and ourselves that we see repeating themselves over and over. Now, one of my, I don't know, probably my favorite account in the scriptures is the story of Joseph. And, and Joseph is down this line. So that you have Abraham, his son Isaac, you have, you have his son Jacob, and Jacob is renamed Israel, okay? God gives him the name Israel, and Israel has uh, these sons. His, one of his first sons is Joseph. I say his, his first son with his second wife <laughs> um, is Joseph. Now, the brothers don't like Joseph, and they want to kill him because Joseph has this dream. God gives him this dream. Joseph is hearing God's voice. God gives him this dream. He tells his brothers, because and and it says that his brothers are going to bow down to him one day, and which, which brothers wouldn't hate that. Uh, so he tells his brothers, and they despise him for it. They're envious, they're jealous, and they despise him. So they say, let's kill him. And Joseph is, is just trying to hear God and trust him. He probably had horrible timing in telling his brothers this. Um, and instead of killing him, though, they throw him into a pit, and then they sell him to slave traders. So he gets sold into slavery, which I don't know if, if that's any better. They act like they're doing him a favor, but, I mean, they, they end up selling him into slavery. But they fake his death. They go tell Jacob, Israel, his dad, that he was killed by wolves or dogs or something. And, um, and then Jacob's sold in slavery into Egypt. And he's trusting God through this whole thing. He's just trying to trust God. Because he's like, I've heard you, God. You gave me this vision, right? I'm trying to follow you. And you know, he's seeing this pattern work down in his own life. You know, this, this, this pattern of sin, God's calling him. And, and now he's suffering, and in Egypt, it isn't all good. He gets thrown into prison for a few years because he's hearing God's voice and obeying God. People despise him for it because it makes him successful, and people despise him. So they throw him into prison for a couple of years, and he's going through all this suffering, but God's abundant grace keeps on covering all these things that are happening. And Joseph perseveres, and he stays faithful. He endures. And what ends up happening is God's kingdom culture supersedes human culture. Joseph becomes second in command over Egypt of a, foreign of a foreign nation, of a foreign people, second in command. And his brothers end up coming because there's a famine. He ends up saving his whole family. 
They come because there's a famine. They come to Egypt, and guess what? His brothers end up bowing down before him because they don't recognize him because he's second in command of Egypt. And the dream is fulfilled, and Joseph says these words at the end of Genesis. He says to his brothers, his brothers are scared he's going to do something to them. His brothers are scared they're going to get killed by Joseph because he's powerful, and they think he's vindictive. They have a skewed perspective, right? They think he's out to get them, and he says these words to them. He says, as for you, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And it's because of that that all these people are alive today. Because God's culture supersedes human culture. And God's providence supersedes anything that you are doing to take away from his plan. And he forgives his brothers, and they rejoice, and they hug, and um, they end up moving the family to Egypt. And it's this beautiful picture of reconciliation. And what Joseph may not have realized at that time was his statement was a statement of humanity's journey of faith back to God. That oftentimes what God, or I should say what, what we have designed for evil and what we mean for evil, God comes in and he cleans up and he continuously calls us back to himself. And he makes it good and he doesn't give up on us. And he says, you will have my presence, you will have my rest, you will have this promised one, you will have blessing. And God's ultimate blessing is this Jesus, Jesus Christ, this Messiah, this promised one who is coming to rescue us and, and save us from ourselves. Because we keep on choosing the evil. We keep on choosing the lesser. We keep on choosing what's not best. And God wants so much more for us. And so he says, you have a choice. You can choose life, and it's plentiful, it's, it's, it's bountiful, or you can keep on choosing evil. All you have to do is hear, trust, and obey my son Jesus. And that's the choice of life, that's the choice of blessing, that's the choice of fruitfulness, of, of, of uh, abundance that he gives us in Christ. And so this morning, if you're not a believer, that's the type of God that we serve, that we worship. That's who the Christian God is. He isn't a vindictive God, a punishing God. He's a God who is, who is love, the Bible says, who is calling out to you, who, yes, there's consequences for our, action, our actions, but guess what? Jesus takes care of all of that on our behalf. And that's the awesome thing. Jesus has paid that penalty for all of us. So hear, trust, and obey God calling you to himself this morning. All right. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for just the beauty of it, that it is, uh, it is so intricately woven and that we are intricately woven into its story. It's our story. And so I pray that uh, this morning you would just draw us to yourself, that we would know that this story is ours, that you have destined us for it, that our identity is in Christ, that you want us to influence uh, through those two truths because that's what we were meant to be. That's, that's um, what was meant to satisfy us. And so, Jesus, just fill this place this morning with your spirit that we would know you and worship you in spirit and in truth. We ask in your name. Amen.